Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined as always by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we're going to talk about Twitter's fact check of the president and the president's response, Joe Biden's comments on the Breakfast Club, and the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and the political calculus behind the president's attacks on Joe Scarborough. Plus, with a maximum of 16 days left until the little dude makes his appearance, I ask the guys for their best parenting advice. Let's dive right in. So on May 11th, Twitter introduced a new policy over memo. Here's what a portion of the May 11th memo said. Starting today, we're introducing new labels and warning messages that will provide additional context and information on some tweets containing disputed or misleading information related to COVID-19. Yesterday, the president tweeted, there is zero way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. The governor of California is sending ballots to millions of people. Anyone living in the state, no matter who they are, how they got there, will get one. That will be followed up with professionals telling all of these people, many of whom have never even thought of voting before, how and for whom to vote. This will be a rigged election. No way. Twitter later in the day put a little uh, addendum at the bottom in blue. It said exclamation point, get the facts about mail-in ballots. When you clicked through to that, it said uh, it had a story. It also said what you need to know. And it had three bullet points. Trump falsely claimed that mail-in ballots would lead to a rigged election. However, fact checkers say there is no evidence that mail-in ballots are linked to voter fraud. Trump falsely claimed that California will send mail-in ballots to anyone living in the state, no matter who they are or how they got there. In fact, only registered voters will receive ballots. Five states already vote entirely by mail, and all states offer some form of mail-in absentee voting, according to NBC News. This will not surprise any of you, but the president responded late last night and said, Twitter is now interfering in the 2020 presidential election. They are saying my statement on mail-in ballots, which will lead to massive corruption and fraud, is incorrect based on fact-checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post. Twitter is completely stifling free speech, and I, as president, will not allow it to happen. And then this morning, Republicans feel that social media platforms totally silence conservative voices. We will strongly regulate or close them down before we can ever allow this to happen. We saw what they attempted to do and failed in 2016. We can't let a more sophisticated version of that happen again, just like we can't let large-scale mail-in ballots take root in our country. It would be a free-for-all on cheating, forgery, and the theft of ballots. Whoever cheated the most would win. Likewise, social media, clean up your act now. David, I want to turn to you first. First, let's start with what do you make of Twitter's addition of a fact check to the president's tweet on his on, on the platform that he uses to reach so many people. Yeah. So I think this is Twitter's, it's a mistake. It's Twitter's mistake to make. It is not censorship. And the president doesn't have any authority over Twitter and will not have authority over Twitter 
consistent with so long as uh, conventional First Amendment principles apply. I mean, this is kind of like uh, peeling an onion of of weirdness in many ways. But the law is relatively straightforward and simple here. The law is this is a private platform. Twitter is a private company. Uh, it is uh, has broad, broad latitude, both by statute and constitutionally, to shape the rules and to write the rules that govern the platform. Those rules can include good faith moderation, which can include fact checking. And so this is within Twitter's rights here. Now, that doesn't mean just because it's within Twitter's rights to do this, that this is a wise move. As several people pointed out, wait a minute, does this mean that if Twitter doesn't add the little exclamation point and the fact check, that it is then endorsing everything else on the platform by a public that's that's written by a, a public figure? No, it doesn't. It just shows that there are highly selective times when Twitter is going to intervene like that by adding the little exclamation point and the, and the link to more. Uh, but it creates this impression that Twitter is reviewing and passing on as, as sort of a seal of approval to other content, which is not what it's doing. Third, it's not censorship. Trump's tweet, tweet is still up there. Uh, it, is, it is still visible to everyone who wants to look at it. So this is not censorship. This is a fact check, uh, which is not, which is a far, far cry from censorship. And if you're wanting to talk about censorship on social media, you have no trouble finding conservative viewpoints and pro-Trump viewpoints on Twitter. They are all over the place. Uh, but you know what? One of the things that this does, however, is it it does tap into, and Twitter's action does tap into. This really, uh, especially amongst very online conservatives, this widespread belief that, uh, number one, Silicon Valley is out to get them, that big tech is out to get them. And there are anecdotal, there's anecdotal evidence and there are anecdotes of, of individuals who have been removed from platforms. Uh, there's a high overlap between those individuals who've been removed from Silicon Valley platforms and some of the worst people in the world. <laughs> uh but there is this sense that, well, the sword of Damocles hangs over everybody, which it does not. It does not. In fact, if you look at some of the statistics regarding the, the leading voices online, actually, it, it kind of maps often with the demographics of who uses the platform. So if you look at the, the top publishers of Facebook, for example, the people who are most who uh, have the, the who are able to to reach the most eyeballs on Facebook. What's remarkable is you'll see that Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire often dominate outlets like the New York Times, uh, BBC. Uh, they, they'll be more than the Washington Post. Uh, it, it's really remarkable the success that some conservatives have had on Facebook. But also Facebook is a platform with a lot of older users. Older users, at least until very recently, tended to be more Republican. Uh, Twitter is a platform with younger users. Uh, it has a platform of the users tend to skew more to the left. So left-wing voices tend to do better on Twitter. Uh, there is not a systematic censorship issue on social media. Um, but the, one last thing. This is a symbol, though, of how Trump's behavior puts pressure on institutions. Because if Trump was not the president of the United States, and he'd likely have been banned from Twitter, or at least 
he would have likely had to have deleted a pile of tweets. Uh, Twitter, for example, prohibits targeted harassment, and targeted harassment is one of Trump's specialties, singling out a person like Joe Scar Scarborough and relentlessly insulting him, accusing him, or coming right up to the line of ab accusing him of committing crimes that he didn't commit. Um, Twitter's rules prohibiting targeted harassment are pretty broadly written, but if you're going to single out another human being for a relentless attack, um, there's a very good chance if you're anyone else other than the president, you would have to delete those tweets and at the very least and perhaps be suspended from the platform. But Twitter has carved out an exception from its rules for the president. And so he's living a life that the rest of us sort of don't get to live online. And it puts immense pressure on the system, on the integrity of the system. And this is how Twitter responded to that pressure the president puts on it. And I think they responded in a way that's a mistake, but it's within Twitter's rights to respond. Steve, I want to turn to you next because we do fact checks at the dispatch. And I'll note just to go off what David said there, uh, and we'll talk about the substance of the Scarborough feud later, um, but it has not done anything with the president's tweets on Joe Scarborough. What it put on the tweet is exclamation point, get the facts about mail-in ballots. You as a user then have to click on that in order to get a fact check. It does not anywhere say false or this is a misleading statement. Um, so in that sense, I wonder whether some of the media coverage about, quote, Twitter fact-checking the president's tweets, um, on its face, it you know they could have done more, I guess. So as someone who is interested in fact checks and oversees our fact checks, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting. I mean, I think what, what Twitter is doing is what similar to what Facebook and others uh, have done, which is turning to third parties who have fact checked and, and, and sending its readers uh, or, or Twitter consumers there to get more information. Um, and in that sense, it's misleading to say that Twitter itself is doing the face check, but I, fact check. But, but I think, you know, David raises some, some very good points, and this is why this is such a naughty issue, and it's why these platforms have um, taken, you know, sort of two steps forward, two steps back, and, and tried to figure out exactly what their role is in, in you know, helping to, to police the speech or monitor the speech on their platforms. And, you know, I think, I think, I agree with David, Twitter has every right to do this. I think Twitter probably should be doing this, um, f at least in some limited way. Um, you know, what the president tweeted was false. It was indisputably false. Um, and, you know, he's been known to do this quite a lot. And I think it, it um, you know, raises real questions about his ability to spread that kind of disinformation. And, you know, in some ways, threatens to undermine the legitimacy of our elections. So I do think this is a, a, a real issue. And I think Twitter probably is right to step in. But that doesn't mean that this is going to be clean and easy. I mean, you look back at the, we've had Chinese, uh, government officials tweet Chinese propaganda about the United States and suggesting that we uh, that we are responsible, that the U.S. Army might have been responsible for 
uh, the coronavirus and bringing the coronavirus to China. Now, they, as often as not, did it a little more artfully so that it was hard to say that's a fact. They're claiming a fact that is demonstrably untrue. Therefore, we can fact check this. It was much more suggestive and, and troublemaking. But, you know, there, there were calls at the time for Twitter to step in and, and declare that those things weren't true. And, you know, you get into this massive, massive gray area where, you know, it, it, it may not be as clear as it is, I think, in the case that, that you referred to on the president's tweet, that these things are false. And that, I think, is where Twitter runs into some real trouble. Jonah, politically, the president has complained about Fox News, the Wall Street Journal. He's turned a lot more to OAN, uh, you know, and promoting them. Is there an equivalent, a political equivalent of that for Twitter? Or politically, is he actually in a great place fighting with Twitter for the next, uh, you know, five months of the election till the election? You know, I mean, there is some calculation that I still do not completely understand, which says that the president somehow benefits by constantly picking fights that are not about any of the issues normal Americans care about. And um, I've just come to accept that we believe that for some reason this is good for him. So sure, this gives him another, you know, uh, enemy of the people to fight with for five and a half months and the very online right-wing crowd will think it's brilliant because they've just internalized as a syllogism that when Trump picks fights with people and they fight back and then he counterpunches, this is a sign of his brilliance. It's, 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 it's just accepted as true. And so sure. Um, I do want to push back. I, I want to, uh, that was the, the least agreeing with me agreement, I think, ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, I, like, I mean, we're in the middle of a freaking pandemic. We're in the middle of an economic catastrophe, and I have very, I have a very hard time using traditional Earth logic, reaching the conclusion that it is great news for the president of the United States that he gets to pick a fight with this horrible website. Um, you know, I mean, it just, it's, it's a weird thing, but it's the, it, we, you know, they touch the orb. This is the universe that we're in. So be it. Um, I do want to make one more, I mean, I, I basically agree with Steve, but I, I think that Steve, I, I think the best argument for doing this, I, I take David's point entirely. And I pretty much thought it was a mistake too, for Twitter to do this for, the, for among the other, among other reasons, the one that David mentioned, which is. If you condemn or fact check one person, you, by implication, are endorsing the people that you don't. You know, it's sort of like a, I can't remember what the phrase is, but William F. Buckley always used to use this Latin phrase, which translates as to, to include means to exclude, right? You know, if you mention a bunch of people in a thank yous and you leave one out, then you aren't, aren't thanking them. And that's a problem. So... I agree that is definitely a problem. I think, you know, you can just make a very clear case for why it is appropriate to do it for the, United, the president of the United States of America and maybe leaders of other governments, too, insofar as, at least in the United States, the president is immune from all sorts of laws about slander and defamation, at least while he's in office. And 
Um, so when he insinuates that a leading journalist murdered somebody, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, or when he insinuates that the election will be uh, invalid if he loses because this is full of fraud and all that kind of stuff, as a matter of good civics and sort of journalism 101, fact-checking the, the, the head of the executive branch is much more important and legitimate than fact-checking, you know, uh, some poltroon, uh, you know, who just, you know, tweets whatever the hell he wants, you know, from his radio show or something. Um, the president of the United States is the leader of the executive branch of the government. He speaks for the administration. And if a, if the federal government is in effect lying to the American people on weighty issues, having a different standard for those kinds of lies than your normal run-of-the-mill free speech lies seems to me utterly defensible. Uh, by the way, we have a legal canon. I don't know if this is what he was mentioning, but there's a legal canon, uh, the negative implication canon, expressio unius est exclusio alterius, which is that the expression of one thing implies the exclusion of others. Yeah, that's that's Buckley's. That, Buckley, could, <laughs> Buckley could say it as if he was saying, pass the coffee. I mean, and I just, can't. Yeah, and I, I, I can't. I can't either. But it comes um, up in statutory construction quite a bit. I bet. Plug. Advisory opinions may discuss this someday. <laughs> yes. Can, can I jump in on that on that point real quick? Of course. I, this is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna beat a hobby horse. I. I am so tired of carving out exclusions of lawful and good behavior for the president of the United States. And if I, you know, Twitter will never have the guts, uh, Twitter will never have the guts to do this. But rather than saying, okay, well, we're going to fact check the president or maybe fact check a small cohort of particularly prominent voices and nobody else, just apply the same freaking rules to the president of the United States that apply to every other human being that uses the platform. Make him delete tweets as you would any other person, any other, and suspend him if he doesn't. Now, um, that would but do, cause But David, a let me push back on that. Do you, uh, I understand there's some fact-checking around some of the specifics in uh, the mail-in ballot tweet that we're talking about. Right. And I think they point those out when you click through. Um, but I think a lot of conservatives take issue with uh, there's no voter fraud in the country arguments also. Well, sure, of course. And the first thing that they fact check is that uh, there is no evidence that mail-in ballots are linked to voter fraud. Uh, at the same time, the Department of Justice had a press release yesterday, so <laughs> take that for what you will, uh, charging a mail carrier for attempted voter fraud dealing with mail-in absentee ballot applications. So I hear you, but is this really the battle to have picked? And are, you know, does no, no one I'm, on this podcast think that there's voter fraud? No, the vote fraud issue, I mean, Twitter to pick those tweets, again, to me, goes to the error of this whole thing. Um, the, for Twitter to pick those tweets when, you know, there there is a lot of overstatement about ballot access voter suppression, voter fraud. I mean, if you want an area of American life where you've got more hyperbole, um, it's hard to choose the battle between voter suppression that the that the left talks about and voter fraud that the right talks about. When 
you know, if you drill down in the numbers in both of those, you know, very, very, it is very, 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 very rare to find vote fraud to an extent that impacts an election. And one of the most recent examples actually happened to be Republican voter fraud, by the way, in North Carolina. Um, and the, the battle over voter suppression is, uh, uh, my goodness, it's hard to fact check. When you say, for example, that voter suppression cost Stacey Abrams the, you know, the gubernatorial race in Georgia, and yet turnout was way up in Georgia, but it was voter suppression that caused, and I know there's arguments about this flying back and forth. This is, again, I think this goes to Twitter's tactical mistake of saying, okay, of all of the things that have occurred and all of the things that, that Trump has tweeted, this is what we're intervening on right here. That, to me, goes to Twitter's mistake. What I, what, what I want Twitter to do is apply the same rules I live under on Twitter should be the rules that every user lives under on Twitter. And, and by carving out this exception on a host of, in a host of ways for this guy, this president, uh, to me, it creates just cascading series of problems. Jonah? And, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. But you began, you began your pushback on this by saying uh, you're sick and tired of having uh, carve-outs for good and lawful behavior. And the the thing is, as you said in your first go-round, I agree with you, it's lawful. It ain't good behavior, right? What Trump is doing is not good behavior, full stop. No, 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 what I say it is, I'm tired of carve-outs for Trump from good and lawful behavior, where Trump- <laughs> Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, Okay. so Trump has a separate set of rules that you now some of them are formalized, you know, the, the DOJ policy against indicting a president while in office. Um, Sarah and I argue uh, back and forth as to whether or not that applies even to state prosecutions. I don't think it should. In fairness, Twitter's so does the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll find that out soon enough. <laughs> but, but, my, okay, but my only point is, is that it is, I believe, you guys know this stuff far better than I do, but I believe the decision went forth at, very early in the administration that the president's tweets are considered official statements yeah. by the office of the president of the United States. So yes. in effect, what you have is, um, and I, I, I'm using this word on its, and its literal meaning, not the sort of overly negative connotation that it's come to accrue. You have this being essentially a propaganda channel, an official propaganda channel. Now, yes. And Seems to me no one else, I mean, maybe uh, maybe Secretary Pompeo's Twitter feed should have a different standard to it, too. I don't know. But when you have the head of the government, the head of state, um, having essentially an official propaganda channel, the reason why we have a free press in this country is primarily to hold public officials' account and to have to treat his Twitter account like it is any other person's Twitter account, that is actually bulldozing a really important distinction to me. And um, and it's one where, look, again, I think for corporate purposes, purposes I think that, that Twitter got itself into this mess. Um, they let the 800-pound gorilla in because it was getting them views, and now they don't know what to do with it. Um, and... Uh, and frankly, it would not break my heart as long as nobody was hurt if the entire place burnt down in a fire. <laughs> but the 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 simple fact is is that 
we are not talking about a, when, when a human being is indemnified and immunized from the laws that apply to everybody else, when he is allegedly speaking for the government, particularly during a pandemic, um, and he is dedicated to these sort of self-aggrandizing lies and distortions, seems to me there's a more there's a there, there's a more of a compelling reason to single him out versus other people um, uh, than you're allowing for. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I, Steve, I, I think I'm going to give you the last word here, but well, I do want to add. Can't. I mean, you, you can't give me the last word because I want to ask a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to to uh, prolong this. No, but I, I think this is really interesting because I think what what we're all saying in one way or another is that Twitter is now engaged in an elaborate line drawing exercise, right? I mean, for for a long time, Twitter said what could go wrong. We're not drawing lines. We refuse to draw lines. Now they're saying, okay, we think we ought to draw some lines. And there's this huge debate about where, where the line should be. I think part of the problem with, with Twitter is they've been all over the place about what, this, what they should be doing and what this involves. And I think that's, that's true uh, of Facebook as well. It's like we, the, the public has been kind of whipsawed back and forth as they've tried to figure out what their proper role is here. And it's led to real confusion about this, about exactly what Twitter's doing. Do they have one standard for Donald Trump and another standard for non-governmental officials? If they have those different standards, should they have the same standards for Donald Trump and Joe Biden? I would think the, the argument would be yes. But Twitter earlier, you know, labeled as misleading uh, a tweet that Trump retweeted that was manipulated video of Biden. But the a Biden ad had manipulated video of Trump or a speech that Trump gave by inserting laughter uh, to make it look like the UN was laughing at Trump when the UN wasn't laughing the way that the video did. And the, and Twitter didn't do anything with that. I mean, I think that's, these are the kinds of things that Twitter has opened itself up to because there are going to be those constant comparisons. And I think you'll, you'll hear from conservatives, you're already hearing from conservatives who have pointed out um, you know, the political leanings of some of the people involved at Twitter involved in policing these things. And, you know, it's, it's sort of in some ways kind of a, a, a self-parody that the, there's a, the head of Twitter, Twitter's site integrity has now been revealed to have sent a bunch of very, very hostile tweets uh, about conservatives and, and, you know, retweeting things that were favorable um, from Hillary Clinton. You know, you, you, you sort of wade into this, and unless you have very clear and obvious rules, unless you declare loudly in advance what your standards are and how you're going to enforce them, I think that's where you get in trouble. So I think it's right that they've decided that they need to weigh in on some of these things because it's pretty important. Um, but I don't think they've done a good job on letting people know exactly when that's going to be so that it doesn't feel so arbitrary. I'm not trying and to be a jerk, that, but what, what was the question? What was the question? Do you agree? <laughs> Do you agree? And, and who? Don't you, don't you think I'm right? 
<laughs> and that question was directed sorry. to. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. So, well, <laughs> I mean, it was sort of, you know, amplifying your point, pushing back a little bit. I thought somebody no, might want to. No, fact check. Yeah. That was not a question. True. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it seems to me, though, that what each, what to take on Jonah's point a little, Jonah, what you're describing is that Twitter is taking on a news function. Yes, news organizations uh, take statements from government leaders, uh, and sometimes they, you know, fact check them or push back on them or add context to them. And Steve, to your point, sometimes those leaders aren't as important as others, and they're going to have to let it fly just from a resources standpoint uh, because it's not as important. You're going to be more likely to write up something the President of the United States says, no matter who it is, uh, to provide context, nuance, fact check, whatever you want to call it, than you are to a senator, uh, no matter what that senator says. And so is Twitter now just in the news business, same as CNN, NBC, you know, et cetera? I don't know. I mean, look, we're, we're in a strange new world. I mean, it's a good question. Um, I just don't have a great answer for it. It does seem to me that you know, here at the Dispatch or previously at the Weekly Standard or at National Review or CNN or wherever, um, we would never dream of simply running a White House press release as an article. We might run it in the sense of post the whole thing and say, okay, now here's some interesting things about this. Here's the context that's missing, blah, 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 blah. I'm only just, I'm just simply making more a point about sort of civics and ethics that it is, to me, there is a distinction there. I'm, I'm with David that Twitter has just created an enormous mess for itself and, and a real political problem for them and for their business model. Um, but, you know, look, they, they cast their wish with the monkey paw a long time ago, so they're <laughs> due all the curses that come with it. And um, But I'm just saying that this idea that... that you know, and also, just one last thing, this idea that there's censor, I mean, I you mentioned this before, Sarah, but the very word censorship here is so weird. I mean, the great censorial, you know, this great Orwellian regimes of the past never included the equivalent of a click here for more information link, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, all it's doing is saying, here, here's some other articles. It's not saying this is a lie or any of that kind of stuff. Anyway. Well, perhaps this will all just become part of the great sort. Facebook, to David's point, will become the conservative social media platform. Twitter will become the democratic social media platform. And ne'er the twain shall meet once again. It is ironic, though, that the president is, is frustrated claiming that Twitter is, is censoring his speech and then goes on Twitter this morning to announce that he might look into effectively shutting down these social media policies <laughs> to preserve or companies to preserve free speech. I mean, there's, there's sort of layer of irony after layer of irony. I will just continue to be on the hill that says the president of the United States should be held to at least the same standards on Twitter as accounts with names like Antifa Stephen or Proud Boy Jim. And that by continuing to carve out for this person exceptions to rules that we apply to every other human being on the planet, puts enormous strains on our system. It 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 degrades the presidency. It is 
Yeah. After, I, I, after I just, hearing all of the arguments, I think David's is the one I disagree with the most. Because <laughs> I, do not, I do not want uh, uh, social media platforms treating heads of state or political candidates, things like that, uh, uh, putting their thumb on the scale more than is necessary. I think that is a scary place to go. Where, but the question is what is necessary, right? I mean, isn't that the question? Uh, it is, but in this case, uh, I think including something that says click here for more information about mail-in ballots is quite different than uh, suspending a user. But to your point, Steve, so some videos get suspended and some don't. You're yeah. never going to have a perfect enforcement system. And if you're not going to have a perfect enforcement system, I think a lighter touch is a better touch in that case. Uh, not you know, David's I, I, kick them I have all tweeted- off. I have tweeted thousands and thousands and thousands of tweets amongst some of the most hot button topics in America. And never once have I had to worry about censorship by Twitter. It's not hard. It's not Uh, hard. You know, I hear you. But like, if you remember two years ago, they were um, what deplatforming. They deplatformed the uh, chairwoman of the RNC at one point. So, uh, you know, I hear you, David, but like, it's not as clear cut, I think, as you make it out to be either. Sarah, is there is there anything that, let's say the president started tweeting stuff like the Groypers tweet, you know, clear and <laughs> obvious race trash. You mean Michelle uh, And yes, would, would you be in favor of Twitter deplatforming the president in such a circumstance? You know, no is the answer. I'm not happy about that answer. I'm sad about it because I don't like that hypothetical, obviously, but I think it's the obvious hypothetical. Um, No, I think it's important for people to see a head of state and what they have to say. And then I'm fine with Twitter, including something that says, you know, click here for more information. Um, And yes, I I know that's where the, the logical conclusion of my argument goes. I don't like it, but it, that is where it goes. Actually, in in this hypothetical scenario, and I'm not ascribing these views to the president quite, uh, it wouldn't be click here for more information. It would be click here to get the facts on, quote unquote, mud people. Right. Because that's what the grapers and those guys tweet about. But anyway. Let's move to our next topic. We have multiple (laughs) topics today. Uh, On Friday morning. Vice President Joe Biden joined a a pretty famous radio program called The Breakfast Club, nationally syndicated. He was interviewing with Leonard Larry McKelvey, who is known to his listeners as Charlemagne the God, which is an awesome name. Uh, It was a 17-minute interview. It was getting pretty contentious. And an aide off camera, and by the way, like, side note, if you are ever an aide to a presidential campaign and the interview is running long, Here's maybe what not to do. Uh, the aide <laughs> interrupted the interview and said, thank you so much. That's really our time. I apologize. I want to be clear. There are many times I've wanted to do that. <laughs> and you hold yourself back. Uh, but, but you know, he, he did it. He went on in. Here's the, let me just read you the transcript from that point. Uh, Charlemagne, you can't do that to black media. Biden, I do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Charlemagne, listen, you've got to come see us when you come back to New York, Vice President Biden. It's a long way until November. We've got more questions. Biden, you've got more questions? Well, I tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, 
then you ain't black. Uh, there's a couple more lines after that, but that is the line, of course, that uh, got him in trouble, so to speak. Senator Tim Scott, who's the lone black Republican in Congress, uh, was clearly pre-scheduled for an interview on Fox and went on uh, about an hour later. Here's what he had to say when asked about it. That is the most arrogant, condescending comment I've heard in a long time, and that's saying something. The man who sponsored and led the charge of a 1990s crime bill that locked up more African-American males than any other piece of legislation. And President Trump comes along and through his, his criminal justice reform corrects the absolute mistake made by Joe Biden for him to make such an arrogant, ridiculous comment. If you think about the numbers, 1.3 million African-Americans voted for Trump. He's saying the 1.3 million African-Americans that you're not black, who the heck does he think he is? That is the most arrogant, outrageous comment I've heard in a very long time, and I take offense to that. I think that summarizes uh, what sort of the Republican conservative side had to say. Uh, Charlemagne the God himself actually issued a statement uh, saying that, as Biden said in our brief interview when I asked him if Dems owe the black community, absolutely was his answer. So let's see what you got. Votes are quid pro quo. You can't possibly want me to fear Trump more then I want something for my people. Biden then came out and apologized. I should not have been so cavalier. I never, never, ever have taken the African-American community for granted. No one should have to vote for any party based on their race, their religion, or their background. Uh, by Friday night, the president's campaign had started selling hashtag you ain't black t-shirts and announced a $1 million digital campaign ad amplifying the remarks. Steve, starting with you, is this something we're going to remember in three months? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and, and we use it as we're putting together the morning dispatch to, to determine uh, as often as not what we should be writing about and what we shouldn't. Um, I think this could, could last. I think that the risk for Joe Biden is that this becomes part of a pattern. And uh, I would say that, that his use of racially incendiary comments like this, which clearly I think did suggest that he was taking the black vote for granted, or uh, his comment early in the 2012 presidential cycle where he said Republicans were going to put black people back in chains. Um, you know, he, he has a history of this. And uh, I think if we see more of this, if, if we get to the point where Joe Biden emerges from, from his house and, and begins something, uh, you know, a more active virtual presidential campaign, uh, you know, he's at risk for doing this. And look, part of it, I think, is Joe Biden always tries to be cute. He always tries to, to make the funny comment. And, uh, you know, nobody's quite as amused by Joe Biden as much as Joe Biden is amused by Joe Biden. But it, it carries real <laughs> risks because beyond just his, his trouble that we, we saw throughout the Democratic primaries, of his, you know, putting together sentences sometimes when he when he uh, you know runs into trouble making an argument, he has a tendency to do this. It comes off as flip. Um, you know, I, I think Biden supporters would say, well, judged against what we hear from President Trump, you know, this isn't that big a deal, and voters will look at the kinds of gaffes that that Biden makes with some level of forgiveness. I'm not sure that's true. I think the biggest risk here is that if he does look like he's taking the black vote for granted, it could lead some black voters to stay home. And um, that's, I think that's the, the biggest concern, particularly when you look at it uh, 
in the, the underperformance that Hillary Clinton had in 2016 among black voters. No question. Jonah, uh, Charlemagne the God has also said that this comment means more than ever that Biden needs to pick a black female running mate. I know that's a question that a lot of um, people have. My students have texted me. Uh, do you think that this comment makes that more likely? Will this affect Veep Stakes 2020, if you will? Um, funny you ask, since I just wrote a column about this. Um, I think, yes, it makes it more likely and that it's a mistake. Um, it definitely gives uh, the sort of left-wing base identity politics crowd more leverage over Biden, and Biden is remarkably easy to roll by those people. Um, and, uh, but I would argue that if you, I mean, it depends, a lot of this depends on the individual, but the ranks of female African-American Democrats who are like uh, ready for the vice presidential role, I mean, it, it's Stacey Abrams who wants it, it's Kamala Harris, who... Am I, who else am I missing? Val Demings. Okay, Val Demings. Okay, so um, uh, that's not a huge list, I think it's fair to say. And um, and I kind of come to the view that, you know, I don't think this is, unless Steve is right that it creates a pattern and he does more of these stupid statements, always possible, I don't think this is really remembered in any powerful way in three or six months. Um but patterns are different than one-off, you know, gaffes. And the thing that we know about Biden going by the primaries is that he has vastly more support from African-American voters than Kamala Harris does. We don't, you know, you can't really compare it to Stacey Abrams, but he crushed Cory Booker and Harris and, uh, and what's his face who ran from Massachusetts, which is really not fair. Yeah, um, I mean that that was a juggernaut. I couldn't, I didn't imagine <laughs> it was going to be unstoppable. But my only point is, is that he actually does really well with with African American voters, particularly the African American voters who vote, which is older voters. And uh, there's this weird sort of uh, disconnect between what people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and all these people say when they say he has to pick someone from the left wing base of the party, blah 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 or he has to pick a black person because that's the only thing that's going to energize the base. And sometimes they'll say in the same interview that Donald Trump is the most horrible, evil creature to ever emerge from the Stygian depths of the netherworld. And the most important thing in the world is to vote him out of office. Well, okay, so you're saying the base won't vote to vote him out of office unless you have Stacey Abrams on the ticket? I thought this was an existential crisis. And so I think that this idea that that the base won't be energized to vote out Trump is not true. Donald Trump is going to play for the Democrats the same role that Hillary Clinton played for the Republicans in 2016. He is the one who energizes the base. And so what Biden needs to do is, since he's already committed to picking a woman, he needs to pick a boring woman who can reinforce the message that he wants to send rather than create this sort of space between them and give Trump reason to do, play all sorts of nasty racial political games too. David, of course, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, over the weekend, video emerged of a 46-year-old man named George Floyd in Minnesota. Uh, a policeman was kneeling on his neck in the video. He is struggling at the beginning of the video. 
He stops struggling by the end of the video. Uh, we're told that when paramedics responded, uh, he died on the way to the hospital. Four police officers have been fired. The FBI is now involved. The mayor is saying that being black should not be a death sentence. Uh, the police were called in the first place to respond to, quote, a forgery in process, which I believe is uh, check fraud, that he was maybe trying to sign a fraudulent check. Um, there were protests as well yesterday. Uh, squad cars were sprayed with graffiti. Protesters threw stones at police. Police fired tear gas, flash grenades, and foam projectiles. And this comes just weeks after police in Georgia were accused of trying to cover up the killing of black jogger Ahmad Arbery, uh, allegedly by the son of a retired police officer. Uh, so we can talk about Joe Biden's political comments on the one hand, but if this is what is happening in the rest of the country, how do you weigh that with Joe Biden's comments and the race, uh, the political campaign race as a whole and race relations in particular heading into 2020? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, so, you know, look, I think that if, if you're if you're talking about the the job of a president who is not is not uh, except to ask his Department of Justice to intervene in investigating potential hate crimes. And I believe that there has already been a request from uh, Minis- from Minneapolis for the FBI, inviting the FBI to come in and, and take a look at what has occurred there. So aside from the president directing the resources of the Department of Justice, which can be absolutely indispensable in these matters and is already occurring, a lot of what the president does in circumstances like this is he offers a voice to the culture about uh, an, an issue that is causing an immense amount of pain. And should, you know, if you watch that video, it should cause an immense amount of pain to all of us because it's one of the most difficult things to watch I have ever seen in my entire life. It is, it's just, it's too much to bear to even look at it because you, what you see is you see this, this man dying right in front of you with citizens all around these police officers, frantic. He's dying. You're killing him there. You know, check his pulse, check his pulse. And the police are actively using threats of force to prevent citizens from coming in and trying to save this man's life. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. I found myself, and, David, when I watched it, by the way, trying to imagine what I could have done differently. And it's really hard. I mean, at one point, the, the woman who's screaming, check his pulse, is trying to get to him. And she's yeah. being restrained by the officer. And I'm just like, what, what could I have done differently if I were there? Like, what would I have tried? They tried everything that I would have tried. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing that is, there's so many things that are heartbreaking about it. But the thing that was so infuriating was the active use of threats of force to repel any aid for this person who was no threat. I mean, he was literally dying. He was not a threat. And handcuffed. Yeah, he's handcuffed. He's dying. And, you know, one of the things that I would like to see is I would like to see a president who musters more outrage for that than for football players quietly and peacefully kneeling for the national anthem. That's what I would like to see, because not that I, uh, you know, uh, necessarily would uh, engage in that form of protest myself, but the idea, the fury that Donald Trump mustered over that quiet and peaceful protest in contrast with Trump's response to events like Arbery 
Uh, I, as of this taping of this pod, we haven't seen any response to what happened in Minnesota. Um, there is an important presidential function, I believe, in when you're talking about what are the things that you're going to use your bully pulpit to highlight as cultural and legal and historical problems in this country. And when it all boils down to it, if you're an African-American voter, the vast, vast majority are going to trust Joe Biden to have the right instinct on that over Donald Trump. I think justifiably so. That doesn't mean that what Biden did and said to Charlemagne the God is right or defensible. It was wrong, and he pretty much immediately realized it was wrong and apologized for it. I wish he would have apologized for the put the, put y'all back in chains comment from 2012. But with Biden again and again, you see a pattern when he's challenged he gets his dander up and he sometimes reacts with um, weird, strange, angry comments. I mean, what was it? Dog-faced pony soldier uh, yes. was yes. <laughs> in the primary. Uh, but I think in the bottom line is you've got a president who at the end of the day will have mustered about 100 times the outrage at protesters kneeling quietly, peacefully on a football field, then he will muster. And I hope I'm wrong about this. I hope 24 hours from now, 48 hours from now, uh, listeners can say, you were wrong, David. But I, I suspect I won't be. I suspect that the president of the United States is going to, the record will be that he will have been far, far, far angrier about those protesters kneeling on a football field than about that cop uh, putting his knee on a man's neck until the, ne the man dies. Let me expand on that. I think to my original question to Steve, or rather I hope that the uh, political media cable news will think that the legacy of George Floyd has a lot more implication for the election in November than anything Biden said on a radio show that he apologized for within hours. Uh, this seems to have a lot more importance to policy in our country and the equal treatment of citizens uh, than a statement from a candidate. But we shall see. To our last topic, which I have not left a lot of time for, apologies, but the Twitter conversation, I mean, we had to keep going. Uh, it's Joe Scarborough, right? It's the, the Scarborough-Trump back and forth that is happening. Um, again, over the weekend, the widower of the staffer who died sent a letter, an open letter, to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey asking Twitter to delete uh, the president's tweets about his wife. As a husband, I feel that one of my marital obligations is to protect her memory as I would have protected her in life. I'm asking you to intervene in this instance because the president of the United States has taken something that does not belong to him, the memory of my dead wife, and perverted it per for perceived political gains. Twitter has not taken down the tweets, uh, and the president has continued to tweet about it. Uh, this morning, he tweeted, Psycho Joe Scarborough is rattled, not only by his bad ratings, but all of the things and facts that are coming out on the internet about opening a cold case. He knows what is happening. Senator Romney also tweeted this morning, I know Joe Scarborough. Joe is a friend of mine. I don't know TJ, uh, the, the widower. Joe can weather vile, baseless accusations, but TJ... His heart is breaking. Enough already. Joan, I'll start with you on this one because you weighed in a bit over the weekend, as I think some of our listeners noted. 
about the press secretary's uh, response to some of this. As this has continued since Sunday, any updates to your thoughts? <laughs> no, I mean, I, we can keep my uh, entirely accurate opinion of the pre- White House press secretary um, out of this for the moment. Uh, what it seems to me, what Trump is doing there is grotesque and indefensible. And it is, um, uh, and I, I, I don't, I wish I could say this more often, but I think the Wall Street Journal editorial board gets it exactly right. We are supposed to be, and we hear from people all of the time on Fox News and elsewhere, how scandalized we should be about how terrible the Steele dossier was because it spread rumor and innuendo and smeared the president, not, he wasn't the president at the time, smeared Donald Trump. That is what the president of the United States has been doing repeatedly on this, and to be fair, on other things for a very long time. And this is particularly a grotesque one. And um, and I will, I'm happy to condemn it. I think it is a reflection of the man's lack of character and basic decency. Um, it is of a piece- But who with, does it with, matter to? Well, that's the thing. So that's the thing I wanted to get to is actually get to the politics of this. You know, the- he has this thing where he can't let go of these things. I know people who were on the Trump campaign would tell me stories about how they would beg him not to keep attacking the Gold Star parents. And he would just simply say in response, but they attacked me first, as if that justifies the asymmetry of attacking the parents of a dead you know, American hero. Um, it's the same psychology here. He just thinks he just keeps going at it, thinking that this will shake something loose and that because he hears, he only cares about the people who love him, he just hears and he filters out all the other negative feedback. He thinks this is a, some sort of brilliant thing. And the amazing thing is you asked at the, in the beginning of the last segment whether we'll remember the you ain't black thing three months from now or six months from now. We would be far more likely to remember that if Trump hadn't been doing this nonsense on Memorial Day weekend during an economic catastrophe and a pandemic, right? This is not how a guy spends the weekend that we're supposed to be commemorating the dead. Um, he spends it peddling this these scurrilous rumors and whatnot. And the news cycle prior to the weekend was almost entirely, was still about the Joe Biden stuff. He steps on his own message and his own people either don't have the courage or the ability to explain to him that he's his worst enemy in these kinds of things. And that is why I still think it is very unlikely that the guy gets reelected because he, it, he's like the guy who, again, makes, who, who repels more voters than he attracts and he thinks he'll make it up in volume. And this is a perfect example of it. So, Steve, this is, uh, you know, it's a little weird. Think back to 2015 and the person who, you know, arguably did the most early on promoting Trump through his ability to call in and get a lot of that earned media attention was Joe Scarborough. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, and <laughs> and did it repeatedly and chastised um in public and in private, uh, those of us who remain skeptical of, of Donald Trump. Um, so we've seen, obviously, Joe Scarborough 
uh, undergo a pretty dramatic transformation, uh, becoming a, a constant critic of the president and using his show to really tee off on, on Donald Trump with a focus on his character. Uh, you know, Scarborough has written, I think he wrote a Washington Post column, explaining why he's consistent throughout this process. Uh, I wasn't persuaded by the column, um, to say the least. I, I mean, I think, I think Jonah's right. I, I don't know that it has... I, I agree with Jonah that I don't... If I had to guess right now, if I had to bet right now, I don't think Donald Trump gets reelected. And I think these kinds of things, you know, would be part of the explanation. On the other hand, 2016. Wait, really quick to, to clarify, do you mean these types of things because people specifically don't like this or these types of things, meaning stepping on his campaign's message with something irrelevant. Yeah, I'm not sure his campaign has a message. Or something that people message. don't like. I'm not sure his campaign okay. ha- has a message right now. No, I mean, I think he's just a really unlikable guy. He's a, he's a man of extraordinarily low character. Um, he, he, you know, the, 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 I think, you know, part of the reason that Republicans lost seats in the 28 midterms um, was that Democrats effectively nationalized the election and lots of, you know, formerly suburban, formerly Republican-supporting suburbanites didn't vote for Republicans. And I think some of that was an effect of, of Donald Trump. You know, on the other hand, I, you, you could make the counter-argument that he did this stuff throughout the 2016 election. And he was elected anyway. And people have sort of priced in that this is who the guy is. I think the the great, for people who made that argument, their most compelling case came with the follow-up point, which was, and the economy is doing well and the country is generally headed in the right direction. Virtually nobody says that right now. Now, he and Joe Biden are polling sort of roughly even on the economy. Trump had, I think, a slight advantage in, in in a Fox poll on the economy, but if if the economy continues to struggle, and I think it will, and we see you know tens of thousands of deaths from COVID-19 extending into the fall, given the president's very late response there, people are just gonna be a lot less forgiving. I think people who might have otherwise been inclined to say, ah, you know what, my business is doing pretty well, and my, my 401k is doing pretty well and the country seems to be headed in the right direction, you know, I guess I'll vote for him again. Given those circumstances, this might be yet another factor that would get them to to pull ever for Joe Biden or not vote at all. But this is a pattern. I mean, this is not anything new that we've seen from the president. And he's not going to back off. I mean, that the letter that that you read from, I mean, it was heartbreaking to read that from the, the widower here. I mean, a, a really sort of gripping, gut-wrenching letter to read. And this president doesn't care. He doesn't care. So he'll keep doing it. David, let's end where we started on this. Twitter isn't taking down the tweets. <laughs> no. Despite the letter from the widower. No, no, it is not. Um, I mean... I don't want to be a broken record on this. And, uh, you know, that makes me realize that there might actually be listeners who don't even know what that reference means. 
<laughs> I don't want to repeat myself uh, endlessly uh, on, on this point. Uh, I still think that w- we have now discovered what it means when you presume, when you create a series of permission structures that presume a degree of virtue in your leaders, um, that presume that a person will, uh, will have the decency and integrity not to break through every line of uh, civility that in in every social norm uh, regarding leadership that that we cannot presume that will occur and that when going forward um, we need to think about very hard and not just as uh, you know not just companies like Twitter but also we the people of the United States of America need to think really hard about the way in which we have imbued the presidency with this sort of awesome immunity from the operation of law. Um, and I think we need to reflect on that and we need to change that. Um, but, you know, the bottom line here, I think, is that w- there are those who say Trump's tweets don't matter. Trump's tweets don't matter. I think they have mattered a great deal in limiting his upside as uh, his political upside as president. I think he has, and I've said this a few times, he has a lower ceiling until corona, before coronavirus, he had a far lower political ceiling than he should have had based on the economy, uh, you know, peace and prosperity. He should have had a lot higher approval rating, but he didn't. Um, he is rarely, rarely even scratched close to 50%. Um, you know, I think it's distressing that no matter what he does, he still has such a high floor. He has such incredible loyalty in spite of uh, his the way he behaves and his manifest and grotesque incompetence. He does have that high floor, but he's got an incredibly low ceiling. He's going to have to thread a needle once again if he wants to win reelection. And he may well do it. I'm I, you know, if I had to bet today, I would bet that he doesn't win. But uh, I think this is all reason why he doesn't have that high ceiling. It's all reason why that uh, all that vital suburban vote is often, you know, even even in a very red suburb like where I live now, there is just a sense of exhaustion around this. Um, there is just I also this think sense of your your. Uh, yes, it explains some of the suburban vote, but I think it wildly explains the now more than double digit, uh, but heading close to 30 point gender gap. Yes, exactly. That is huge. (laughs) That is huge. And you see it even in red suburbs like here. If you're talking to a particularly to a college educated woman, um, even in red America, you're it's not frequent. You're going to have someone with a MAGA hat on. (laughs) Not frequent at all. Well, let's get to our last topic then. Uh, uh, Moderator's privilege here. Uh, I now look like a Sherman tank heading down the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> There's a maximum of 16 days left of this. <laughs> uh, so, David, coming to you first, advice for a new parent. Ha! I will tell you the thing that gave me more peace of mind, oddly enough, um, than anything that I read or was told to me before we had our first kid. And that is, I read, a, a, it, strangely enough, it was an op-ed in the New York Times, and the essential, the essential thrust of it was, whatever your parental philosophy, you're going to find a PhD somewhere who will back it. 
And and his essential bottom line was know your kid and trust your instincts. And, And I have thought about that because we have three kids and they're all really different. Know your kid and trust your instincts. I, I, that gave me such sort of peace of mind uh, when I read it in those fraught uh, few days before Nancy gave birth. <laughs> Terrifying. Steve? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a, in a strange way, you're, you're ahead just because you chose this as the question to ask. I've found in my informal survey of parents over the years that parents who think a lot about how to parent are the most successful parents. And that sounds simple, but it's also true. I, I think the one, um, the one piece of advice, and this is probably a little cliche, would be to, to read to your child as often as you can, starting immediately, starting as a, a, an infant, a newborn. Um, I think it's soothing. I think it, I mean, this, it, it, it's worked for our kids. It's made our kids I think it's contributed to our kids being as enthusiastic about reading as they are. Um, And I think it certainly um, drew my wife and I closer to our kids because we spent as much time as we did with them hearing our voice, listening to what was important to us. Now, Jonah, you can answer this on behalf of the dogs or your daughter, whichever you think was the the bigger parenting lessons that you learned. Um, Well, the, the, Great thing and horrible thing about the dogs is they their nature remains the same while kids change over time. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so first, I agree entirely with what Steve and David said. Um, I'll give you a much more practical piece of advice. Get a diaper genie right away. <laughs> uh, okay, beyond that, um, someone told me uh, before we had our first kid, get ready for... Um, long days and short years. And that comes to mind whenever, I mean, like we're talking about the cicadas coming back in DC. The last time the cicadas were here, she was in a stroll. My daughter was in a stroller and she was terrified of the cicadas. And now she's 17 years old and like 5'10". And it feels like it (laughs) happened last week. And it gets, it can get you really sort of emotional. Um, The other thing, other practical piece of advice is uh, for your husband that when you need time to re-energize and or relax, the trick is not just to sort of be the babysitter or you know have ba- be on baby duty in the house. Get the baby out of the house. Yeah, it's better. It's better for you because like if you just don't want to do the little tea party stuff or whatever. You go on adventures, that's really important. And it also actually gives you time to just be alone, which you're gonna want. Um, And uh, the last one I would say is very related to Steve's thing about the reading is there is such a thing as quality time with your kids. It's important, Um, but the more important thing is quantity time. You just never know when that great conversation or that great epiphany or that great moment's gonna be. And your kids, particularly when they're really young, they want to be around their parents. And reserving some special three hours to cram in your Wonder Years moments doesn't work. Uh, Take your kids when you travel. Take your kids when you have a speech or any of that kind of stuff. 
they'll be better people for it and you'll be happier. Can, can I add one thing about the diaper genie? Change it out, change its contents out regularly or it becomes Chernobyl. Yes. <laughs> I'll write that down for Scott. That sounds like a Scott job. <laughs> Thank you guys. That was good advice. Uh, all right. Well, from this Sherman tank and the... <laughs> the three dudes and the little dude to come. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you guys next week. 